morning, everybody. My name is Kyle. And I'm Jarissa. It is great uh, to be with you this morning. I want to say hello to everybody here in the sanctuary, everybody watching online, and all the folks out in the great room. And hello to everybody that's watching in the hangar this morning. As we tell you about some of the things that are happening um, in the life of the church, I just want to remind you that you can get more information instantly by scanning that QR code. All the information is going to be on those. It's around your seats there. So you can do that as we go along. Yeah, awesome. So if you're new here, we would love the chance to meet you. One of those opportunities is happening after service. Our welcome party is happening today. So if you're new and you want to come and hang out, you can come after this service and meet in the lobby for that. It's an opportunity to learn more about Fairfax's church history, meet some of the volunteers and some of the pastors on staff, and be able to hang out and have lunch and get to know more about Fairfax. So if you're interested in that, you can go to the lobby, or we'll also have another one in October, so mark your calendars for that as well. Just a couple of weeks on August 31st, that is a Wednesday night, is our next night of worship. Raise your hand if you've been to one of our nights of worship. Okay, awesome. A lot of you, they are incredible. That's why people are liking them so much. Um, It's just a great night for us to just kind of really give over everything um, that we have to God. Just just pour it out um, and to receive back from Him. And um, so if you've never been to one, I really encourage you to come. Um, If you're planning to come, make sure you get that on your calendar. And we would encourage you to invite somebody. You know, maybe there's somebody in your neighborhood that you've been thinking about inviting to church. Be a great night to do that. Or maybe your small group um, wants to come together. But we encourage you to come um, August 31st. Yeah. Registration is now open for our season of healing. So if you have never been a part of a Fairfax group, or sorry, a Fairfax care group, or you are not sure of where to start your journey of healing, we would love to come alongside you in that. Registration is open, so you can sign up using the QR code or go to the events page on our website. It begins September 14th, and it'll meet for four weeks. Every once in a while, we ask you guys to engage in some special projects. And one of those that we're wrapping up today is our backpack drive. And I saw a lot of people bringing them in, and there's a bunch of them in the back, and I was kind of looking at them. Uh, It's just very cool for me to see that, that you guys engage in that and are so responsive to the things that we're trying to do to help some kids in our community who won't have the right school supplies. And because of you, they will. And so I want to thank you personally for doing that and just thank you for all the ways that you give to this church so that we can accomplish our mission in our community. Um, and around the world. So thank you so much for doing that. If you um, have been thinking about making giving part um, of your journey and your walk, it's super easy to do around here. You can scan that code. Um, you can you can put an envelope back in one of the boxes back there. Um, you can give online. It's super easy. So we encourage you to do that. Um, we're going to jump back into this series that we've been in for a few weeks. And so um, watch the video and we're going to jump right back into it. So glad you're here.
Well, good morning, Fairfax. It is so great to be with you today. So we're in the fifth week of this uh, study that's called Light and Love. And uh, it's a study in 1 John. It's an eight-week study in 1 John. There are only five chapters in 1 John. We're taking eight weeks to go through those five chapters. So it's a little bit more of a deep dive than normally we do as we go through books of the Bible. And uh, 1 John, just to kind of remind you again, 1 John was written by John the Apostle, the disciple, one of the 12 disciples, the same one that wrote the Gospel of John is the one that wrote 1 John and 2 John and and 3 John. And uh, the reason actually that we're spending so much time on it and and a little opening video always kind of reminds us of it is that 1 John kind of deals with some really, really important questions about the character of God, who is God, and who are we, and what shapes us. And the theme that runs through the whole book is this This kind of dual theme that God is both light, truth, and love. And uh, and they are inextricably connected to each other. In 1 John, and actually in all of Scripture, truth and love are two sides of the same coin. According to John, that, uh, that love without truth is not really love. And that truth... Without love is not really true. And so we've been exploring that over these weeks, and we will continue to explore that. And, it, and kind of this theme, including today, it kind of comes up over and over and over again. Truth and love and how the two go together. This week we're looking at uh, the first half of chapter 3. The focus of this passage is about answering this question, basically. And the question is, what actually changes when you become a Christian? Like, what actually changes when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you make that decision, when you finally cross that line and say, I'm going to follow Jesus? Like, what actually changes? Like, do you stop struggling with sin? Does life get a little easier than it was before? Do you become more holy? Does nothing change? Does anything change? Uh, And if change does happen, like, how does it happen? Does it happen slowly? Is it gradual? Does it happen uh, all of a sudden? Like, how does that change take place? And those are the questions that John is really talking about in the first half of chapter 3. This is how John begins uh, the passage as he addresses these questions. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Can I get an amen for that? That we should be called children of God. How great is his love, the love that he's lavished on us, that we should, be, we should never get tired of that, that we should be called the children of God. And that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been known. God is still at work in us. But we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John says that one thing immediately changes when you become a Christian, when you become a follower of Jesus, and that's your identity. You immediately become a child of God. 
of God. Now, for some of us, maybe you're going, well, I thought everyone in the world is like a child of God in some way. Well, according to John and really according to Scripture, not everyone in the world is a child of God. Everyone in the world is loved by God. Everyone in the world is precious to God. God, through his Holy Spirit, is at work in the life of everyone in the world to bring him to bring them to himself, but not everyone in the world is a child of God. Only those who through Christ have been adopted into the family of God are children of God. And that happens the moment you decide to follow Jesus. Like, it's not like when you adopt a child into your family. Some of you have gone through that process. Like, once you make the decision that we're going to adopt this child, that usually go through this long, arduous Promise uh, this process that redefines what eternity means to you, and then you kind of understand what eternity means going through the process, and then the adoption is finally actualized, and all that. Not so with our adoption. There is no waiting period, there is no spiritual background check, there is no heavenly bureaucracy to slow down the process. When you decide to follow Jesus, your identity immediately changes. You immediately become a child of God. You may not feel always like a child of God. You may question sometimes whether you're a child of God. But if you have said yes to Jesus, your identity has changed forever and you are a child of God. And then John goes on to remind us that our new identity is not just something that is in name only. This is not just something we're called. Our changed identity actually results in a changed life. Our attitudes change. Our behaviors change. The way that we relate to people changes. The way that we respond to things changes. The way that we react to things changes. The way that we deal, deal with disappointments and hurt and, and difficulties, all of that changes. The way in which we handle relationships changes. The way in which we handle our resources changes. That everything changes. And this is the way that John describes this change. Everyone, verse 3 and following, everyone who has this hope, who's made this decision, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared, Jesus appeared, so that he might take away our sins. Because in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either, been, has either seen him or known him. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him and he cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. Okay, now there are probably some ouch moments like in there for you that you hear that and you go, okay, like I'm not even sure where I stand now with God. I'm not even sure who I am a child of God. Like what, what is John talking about there. So let's just kind of unpack this a little bit. Let's begin with verse 3, where John declares this. You know that Jesus appeared so that he might take away our sin. Now, when you think about that statement, basically the statement, Jesus died for your sins. When you think about that statement, 
it's actually the most condemning statement that could ever be made about you. Because it's saying that our sin is so serious. We are so broken. We're so hopeless. Our situation is so dire that nothing less than God entering into the world and taking on flesh could deal with it. Nothing less than the death of God, God dying for us could deal with it. Jesus came because sin is real. Jesus came because there's really something seriously wrong with us. And if you don't believe that, you need to stop celebrating Christmas. If you don't believe that, you need to stop celebrating Easter because those are all celebrating the fact that the God of the universe took on flesh, suffered, died, rose from the grave to deal with our stuff, to deal with our sin, to take away our sin. You cannot authentically celebrate Christmas and Easter and not embrace the reality that you are royally messed up that we are royally messed up. You can't authentically celebrate Christmas and Easter and not have incredible empathy for other people in the world who are royally messed up. You can't authentically celebrate Christmas and Easter and be judgmental. You can't authentically celebrate Christmas and Easter and not be filled with grace and forgiveness and love and have those manifested in your life. But the statement Jesus died for your sins is also the most hope-filled statement that you could ever hear. Because it means that God, rather than condemning us for our sin, chose to forgive us for our sins. I love the way Paul says it in Romans 8. Therefore, 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 he has just spent Romans 7 talking about how broken we are, how broken he is, how hard it is to do the right thing. In fact, he says over and over again, like, I know what's right to do. I know what's right to do. I know what's right to do. And guess what? I don't do it. Like, I struggle to do that which is right. All the law did was just show me what's right. It didn't give me the power to do it. We need someone. We need some help. I need some help. Therefore, therefore, there is now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The truth is, you know, 1 John, again, is all about truth and love, how they are inextricably connected. In fact, all of Scripture actually is about that. All of Scripture is about truth and love. That you don't have true love if there's not truth that's involved. And you don't really have truth if there's not love involved. And the truth is that we are royally messed up. Like that's the truth. I could use some other words, but I won't. That's the, that's the sanctified version. That's the Fairfax Church version. That we are royally messed up but out of God's great love for us he died for our sin and instead of condemning us God forgives us truth and love 
truth, and love. And that's the theme that runs through 1 John. It's the theme that runs through the whole Bible. And you see that same story. You see that same theme. In the story that John, the same John that wrote 1 John, who wrote the Gospel of John, in the story that John tells in his Gospel about the woman that's caught in the act of adultery, who's brought before Jesus by this condemning group of religious leaders who prepared to stone her to death. Now, we don't have time to go into it, but there's so many unanswered questions in that story. Like, first of all, like, where's the guy in this story? Like, why isn't the guy brought before Jesus as well? Why isn't the guy condemned by these religious leaders? Like, that's one question. And then, of course, the other question that's always been intriguing to me, and maybe it's been intriguing to you, is how did this group of religious leaders, this group of Pharisees, how did this group of religious leaders catch these two people in the act of adultery? Like, were the Pharisees like Alexander Hamilton? Like, were they in the room where it happened? Like, what is going on? Like, those are questions that, like, we will never know, like, the answers to this side of heaven. So we don't know the answer to those questions, but we do know that in this moment, Jesus embodies both truth and love. Because first, Jesus confronts this self righteous condemning group with their own sin and the result is that they all drop the rocks they drop their stones and they began to walk away and then Jesus turns to this woman and he says two things two things first of all he tells her that he doesn't condemn her they've turned away they're no longer condemning her Jesus who doesn't have sin that he's dealing with. He doesn't have to turn away for the same reason that they turn away. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. In other words, Jesus forgives her. In other words, Jesus shows her grace. But then he tells her, go and sin no more. He speaks both words of love and words of truth. He doesn't say, I don't condemn you because who's to say what sin is? Everybody has their own definition for sin and everyone has their own truth and whatever your definition is, whatever. And he doesn't say that. And he also doesn't say, okay, this is a serious sin. Like you violated the law of God, so I condemn you for it. No, he says, this is sin. Like this is messed up. This is not what God created you for. This is not why God put you on this planet. God has something so much better for you than what is going on in your life right now. Like this is messed up, but I don't condemn you. Jesus speaks words of truth and he speaks words of love. And let me just say, if someone that you've hurt has ever done that for you? If someone has ever spoken truth and love into your life, it'll change you forever. When someone you hurt has the courage to say, this was sin, this was wrong, this, whatever it is that you did or whatever it is that you said, whatever it was, like this hurt me, this this was sin. This was messed up. 
but I don't condemn you. I forgive you. I love you. That's transformative. That will change the way you live your life. You will want to live a different kind of life, a a better life, a life that is more whole, a life that is more reflective of why you were even placed on this planet. And John is saying that's what Jesus says to us. He speaks words of truth to us and he speaks words of love to us. He says, you've sinned, but I don't condemn you. I forgive you. I love you. I have taken your condemnation unto myself and died for it on the cross. That's the gospel. And if you truly embrace the gospel, if you truly embrace that, if you truly embrace the forgiveness and grace that God has given you, it will make you want to live a different kind of life, a better life, a a, a more whole life, a a life that is more aligned with, with what God has in mind for you and what God has in store for you. That's why Jesus says to this woman, go and sin no more. Like walk away from this. Go and sin no more. That's why John tells us in verse 9 that no one who's born of God will continue to sin, will continue to walk in this path. And he says it over and over again in slightly different ways throughout the entire passage. So it's a huge deal in this passage. So what does that mean? Like, what does it actually mean (laughs) that if you're a child of God, you don't continue to sin? What does it mean when Jesus says to this woman, and, and in essence, he says to us, go and sin no more? Like, what does that actually mean? It can't mean that when we become a follower of Jesus, we don't continue to struggle with sin. Because just a couple of chapters earlier, in the first chapter... Of 1 John. John says this in verse 8 if we claim to be without sin, if we claim that we don't struggle with sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Like if we pretend that we don't struggle with sin, if we act like we don't struggle with sin, if we like in the church that I grew up in that they talked about the sanctified life, and so everyone didn't want to not live a sanctified life, so they pretended like that there was no sin in their lives. But John is saying, no, no, no. Like, if you, if you say there's no sin, that you are like, you're deceiving yourself. And then he says in the very next verse, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, he doesn't say If we confess our sins, it proves that we are not a child of God. He doesn't say if we confess our sins, it proves that the Holy Spirit is not at work in us. He doesn't say that if we confess our sins, that somehow we are not living the sanctified life. He doesn't say that. Because if the only people who who are the children of God are the people who don't sin, then no one is a child of God. Because all of us, all of us, all of us struggle with sin. And that doesn't just magically go away because we become a follower of Jesus. We continue to struggle with sin. 
So what's John talking about? Well, when John talks about not continuing to sin, he's not talking about the absence of sin. He's talking about your posture towards sin. That when you become a child of God, your posture towards sin changes. Like you become more aware of it. You acknowledge it. You are willing to confess it. You're willing to turn from it. You're willing to repent and turn from it and head down a different path. When you become a child of God, your prevailing habits and behaviors and attitudes begin to change. Uh, you want to be in the yes position to God. Like before we become a child of God, like our primary agenda in life is not to be in the yes position to God. But when you become a child of God, that all changes. Like our desire is to live in the yes position to God. That doesn't mean that we always do. That doesn't mean that there are not times, not seasons when sometimes we are in the no position to God. But our desire, our posture is to live in the yes position to God. The other thing that changes is the way that we worship. And this is always, this sometimes gets overlooked when we look at this passage. Look again at how John starts the chapter. Verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. When you recognize that the God of the universe sees you, like really sees you and sees your sin and does not condemn you, but instead he loves you and forgives you, and, and shows you mercy and adopts you into his family. Says, I want you to be a part of my family. It just changes the way that you worship. And not just the way that you worship when we gather together in this setting and we lift our praises to the Lord. Yes, in those settings, it changes the way we worship, but it changes the way we worship with our whole life. You're just in awe of God's grace. God's grace just takes your breath away. God's grace changes you. It, it transforms you. And when we sin, it's not that we stop being a child of God. It's just that in that moment or in that season, we forget who we are. <laughs> we forget our identity. We lose sight of who we are. And we begin to, I think what we would call, presume on God's grace. And here's what I mean by that. We, we know that God is gracious. We know that God is loving. We know that God will forgive. But rather than being in awe of it, rather than it stopping us in our tracks, rather than it taking our breath away rather than it changing us and transforming us we just take it for granted I've gone through seasons like that you've probably gone through seasons like that you may be going through one of those seasons right now you're thankful for God's grace like you know about God's grace you're aware of God's grace you've accepted God's grace you're thankful for God's grace but it no longer takes your breath away. It no longer transforms you. 
It no longer changes you. You take it for granted. And again, it doesn't mean that you, in those seasons, are not a child of God. It just means that you've lost sight of who you really are. You've forgotten your true identity. So is there something that can help us to not lose sight of who we are as children of God? Is there something that keeps us in awe of the grace of God? Where the grace of God continues to transform us and the grace of God continues to change us and to help us to become the person that God has created us to be. And John says yes. He talks about it in verse 9. Look at that verse again. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because, because, because God's seed remains in him. Now the seed that John is talking about there is the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the presence of God in our life through the Holy Spirit. He's talking about this presence of God in our life through his Holy Spirit that comes into our life when we become a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that John describes God's Spirit, God's presence through his Spirit, not as this tidal wave that kind of sweeps over us and like overwhelms us, but as a seed. He's saying that when we become a follower of Jesus, it's not like we get bowled over with this tidal wave of God's presence in our life. Now, I think that oftentimes that's what people are looking for. They think that that's what's going to happen when they accept Christ as their Savior. They're looking for themselves to be bowled over by the presence of God. That something huge and so big is going to happen that it will just be this huge kind of tidal wave of experience that they will have. And when that doesn't happen, usually people are disappointed or they're disenchanted or they wonder if they've really accepted Jesus. Did we really make that decision? Am I really a follower of Jesus? I'm not sure where I stand because I didn't feel this tidal wave of experience that kind of washed over me of God's presence. They wonder if they've really even become a child of God. But John says that the presence of God is not like that. He says that the presence of God, the presence of God's Holy Spirit in our life is more like a seed. It may seem small and inconsequential at first, but as you water it, as you nurture it, as you care for the environment around it, it will grow. And it will keep on growing and growing and growing. A lot of biological growth is uh, very mysterious and on the surface, very difficult to discern. For, for instance, trees continue to grow in the winter, even though it's very hard to see. Like there's no fruit, there's no blossoms, there's no leaves, but the growth is still occurring. The rings are still being formed. And you may be going through, sometimes we all go through this kind of winter 
of our own spiritual journey. And you may be going through a kind of winter of sort in your own spiritual journey where you can't see any discernible fruit, where there's no blossoms, where there's no leaves. But that doesn't mean that God is not at work. That doesn't mean that you are not still growing, that growth is still occurring. Spiritual rings are still being formed. Do you know what is in a tree seed? The glory and power of a tree. The seed doesn't become a tree. The seed is a tree in the process of living up to its potential. That's what a seed is. It is that which it will become. It is that in the process of living up to what it already is, what has already been determined. Do you know what is in in a God seed? The glory and power of God. So when you become a child of God and the seed of God's Holy Spirit is planted in you, It doesn't become the power and the glory of God. It is the power and glory of God present in you, dwelling in you, inside of you. Spiritual growth, you know, we talk a lot about spiritual growth around this place, and we want people to grow in their journey with Christ, but sometimes people like going, I'm not even sure what spiritual growth is. At its core, spiritual growth is just the process of living up to our potential. It's learning what it means to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and then walking increasingly in the power of the Holy Spirit. We may not always feel that power. Sometimes it may feel like there is no power. You may be going through a season now where it doesn't feel like you have much power, but the power is there. The seed is growing. The rings are being formed. The power of God is within you. It is resident in you, which means that change is possible. Change is so hard. It's so difficult, even when we want to change, even when we say we are open to change, even when we say bring change on. Change is so hard. It is so hard, as Paul says in Romans 7, just to do that which we know is right. Change is hard, but it means because God's seed is at work in us, change is possible. It means we don't have to settle. You don't have to settle. We may get stuck at times, but it means we don't have to stay stuck. That doesn't have to be the posture of our lives. The power is there. So let me me just ask you, what are the areas in your life right now where you just would say, I feel a little stuck. Areas where some change is needed. Are you stuck in some fear that has just kind of paralyzed you in some way? 
Or maybe you are stuck in your anger. Where you feel like at times you have it under control and then something happens and something is said or something goes on, whatever it is, and, and that comes pouring out. And you just find yourself kind of stuck in that. Or are you stuck in your bitterness? Something has happened to you. Something has been done to you. Life didn't go the way that you had hoped. And there's just this bitterness. It hasn't made you better. It's made you bitter. And there's this bitterness that just keeps growing. And you're just stuck. And you just can't get unstuck. Or are you stuck in some entrenched habit pattern that maybe has been going on so on and on and on and for so long and you've tried and there's so many things and you just have finally resigned yourself to say, I'm just stuck. This is never going to change. This just is the way things are. Or maybe there's something terrible in your past that has gotten you stuck. That you, you can't move beyond. John is saying you don't have to stay stuck. There's power. There's power available to you. There's power. There's power that resides within you. A power to surrender the things in your life that, that so desperately need to be surrendered. A power to trust God with the things that you're having a difficult time trusting God with right now, whatever that is. And maybe what that is is just you. It's just like you're, ha you're having a struggle trusting you to God, of giving you, yourself, your life, your future, your past, your present, your everything. Damn, you just... You're just struggling with, it's the power. It's the power to trust God. It's the power to have a difficult conversation that you've been putting off. It's the power that gives you the courage to reach out for help. It takes courage to reach out and say, I need help. I need to talk to someone. I need to get with a group. I need to process this. I need help. That takes courage. And this is a power. John says this is a power that gives you the courage to reach out for help. A power to humble yourself before God. A power to humble yourself before others. A power to humble yourself before your spouse. A power to humble yourself. Anytime there's something we know we need to do, and we say, I can't do that, or I can't let go of that, or I can't give that, or I can't live without that, we're forgetting the seed. We're ignoring the glory and the power of God that is already at work in us. 
So water the seed. Nurture the seed. Give more and more and more of yourself to God. Surrender more and more of you to God. And watch the seed grow and embrace the power that is already yours in Christ. God, we are so thankful. Lord, we confess, first of all, we just confess that sometimes, and maybe for some of us that have been around the church for a long time and we've heard the message of the gospel over and over and over and over again, and it's not that we get tired of it, it's just that it becomes perhaps something we take for granted. That it no longer takes our breath away. It no longer stops us in our tracks. That we have somehow conveniently lost sight of how royally messed up we are that required the God of the universe to take on flesh and to die, to die. And so it no longer transforms us, no longer shapes us, it no longer keeps us becoming the people that you've created us to be. So we confess that to you. And Lord, I pray for anyone today who's here in this service, anyone who's with us online, anyone who has not said yes to what you have done, has not said yes to becoming a child of God, to receiving your forgiveness and your grace and knowing that they are, they are not condemned because of what you have done for them Lord, I just pray that today would be that day to just say yes, to trust themselves with the power of the Holy Spirit, to give them the courage to trust their lives to you. And for those of us that have done that, Lord, I pray that we would not forget the seed that is growing within us, the, the power of God's Holy Spirit, the, the presence of God that is at work. May we nurture it. May we water it. May we give more and more and more and more of ourselves to you. In the name of Christ, amen. Let's stand together.